thank you to Anna and Brian for the invitation. It's great to be here. Uh, if we don't go away enlightened about relations at the end of this, we should turn over to gardening. Um, uh, I apologize in advance for uh, the fact that I'm going to read this paper. So it's not a stand-up-and-talk paper like the two previous ones we had, which were very virtuoso. This one is me reading out what I've written down. And the, the main reason for that is, apart from the usual lack of time excuse, is that I am so uncertain about things that I'm going to say here that unless I write them down, I will get them even more approximately uh, wrong than, than they are now. Um, so this is a kind of exercise in public self-flagellation because um, I, I'm going to end up bear, bearing my naked breast, philosophically speaking, I may add, um, to, to you and, uh, and saying, look at, look at these wounds, what can we do to heal them? Um, so uh, do not expect closure on this particular one. This is, this is a topic that has been upsetting me for years, and the more I think about it, the more I get upset about it not being able to resolve the conflict. Um, and uh, it's not as if I change my mind on this uh, every month or every day. I change my mind on it every time I think about it. So be prepared for some indecision. Um, the, the title it probably doesn't quite accurate. It, it, it covers things that occur in the essay. So external relations, causal coincidence and contingency is the title. And it's always refreshing to read your own titles and abstracts after a month or two when you've sent them in and forgotten what you're going to do. Um, the, 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 the real title should be something like this. Are there real relations? Um, and these topics are germane to trying to answer that question. And it, just to give you my answer to the question, uh, uh, are there real relations? The answer is, I don't know. So uh, don't expect uh, a, a solid conclusion. But expect a rocky ride in the meantime. The first section is on background assumptions. <coughs> Uh, many contingent facts concern objects standing in relationships by accident, uh, prominent among these being spatiotemporal relationships, often taken as the paradigm of externality in relations. Uh, yet the ontological basis for these facts is elusive. The metaphysics of relations is an intricate area, and the metaphysics of spatiotemporal relations especially so. Nearly everything in the area is disputed, and it's not clear that we are close to an adequate account of such relations. The ontological account I shall propose, fairly tentatively, reveals an underlying tissue of internal relationships, leaving only modest scope, if any, for real, irreducible, and basic external relations. In order to be as clear as possible about the background assumptions with which I shall be working, and which drive me into this particular painted-in corner, um, I'll take a little time to set them out. I could call them naturalistic nominalism and sufficient reason. Naturalistic nominalism, as I understand it here, is the metaphysical speculation that all entities are spatiotemporal and particular. It can be contrasted with forms of Platonism, which postulate abstract entities, including universals and mathematical objects, and with imminent realism about universals, which postulates repeatable universals in rebus. Sufficient reason is Leibniz's principle, according to which for any contingent truth, there is a reason why it is true. In certain simple cases, 
namely those of simple, positive, unanalyzable truths, the reason takes the form of an entity or entities whose existence is sufficient to render the proposition in question true. Such entities are truth-makers for the proposition. Not all contingent truths have truth-makers, but there is always a story about why they are true in terms of the existence and non-existence of certain entities or of entities of a certain kind. Uh, a third position to which I'm strongly attracted and which I shall be assuming, but of whose truth I'm much less confident, is relationism about space and time. In other words, space and time are not independently existing substantial entities. If they were, this paper, or if I thought they were, this paper would have to be uh, rather different. Um, the kinds of truths for which I shall be seeking a su sufficient reason concern where things are with respect to one another. For example, on the 18th of June, 1815, two European statesmen of different generations, Napoleon and Bismarck, were approximately 505 kilometers apart, one in Belgium, the other in Germany. Well, what entities are required for this proposition to be true? To anticipate the outcome, uh, I shall be arguing for two things. Firstly, that contingent spatiotemporal truths do not require external relations as a basic kind of entity, that the more fundamental relational truths behind such contingencies are internal, and secondly, that the contingency attaching to such truths has as its source the contingent existence of events and processes, including those that sustain enduring objects like you, me, Napoleon and Bismarck. So the second section is called Relational Predications, uh, Internal, Weakly External and Strongly External. Uh, for reasons that coincide with those to be mentioned later by Jonathan Lowe, I'm not happy with talk of internal and external relations. I do not think that there are any items in an ontology that are to be called internal relations. I will therefore effect a semantic ascent and relocate the internal-external distinction among predications. Let a predication P, A, B, C, etc. be about the several particulars A, B, C, etc. Having more than one slot to be filled by terms for particulars, it's appropriate to call such a predicate relational. Call such a predication internal if its truth is necessitated by the mere existence of its terms. The terms are then jointly truth-maker for the predication. So the only way in which the predication could have been false is if one or more of the terms had failed to exist. For example, the truth that John and Mary are numerically different is necessitated by the mere existence of John and Mary. Call a uh, relational predication external if it's not internal. It's weakly external if its truth is necessitated by the existence of the terms and the way they, as a matter of fact, intrinsically or non-relationally are what we might call their factual natures. For example, that John is taller than Mary is true because of how tall John is and how tall Mary is. Had John been shorter and or Mary been taller, the predication could have been false. 
if the predication is false, it could have been true had the terms existed and one or other been intrinsically different in at least one way. Finally, a relational predication is strongly external if the existence and factual natures of the terms do not necessitate its truth. For example, this brings up an example we've had already actually, that John and Mary are next to one another at a certain time is not necessitated by how John and Mary are then, but where they are then, which is not a matter of their factual natures. These natures could have been the same, and yet the two not have been next to one another at that time. Um, that's an excerpt from a guitar piece by Francisco Tarrega called Grand Valls. Um, if, if, if it had been copyrighted, the, uh, the um, descendants of Francisco Tarrega would have been as rich as Bill Gates. If you don't believe me, look Grand Valls Tarrega on, on YouTube. It, it occurs in about bar 12. Um, the next section is called Relations as Something Objective in the World. In the case of true, strongly external predications, we may raise the question, so like John, John is next to Mary, we may raise the question as to what, if anything, makes them true. There are a number of proposals that have been made, including the factualist proposal we find in Bertrand Russell, which says it's the existence of a state of affairs, or Russell called it, a fact linking the terms with a relational universal. However, for reasons I've detailed elsewhere, I reject both universals and states of affairs. But that does not mean that objective or real relations are ruled out. If they do exist, then the best candidate status for them is that of being a relational trope. A trope is a particular which depends for its existence on another particular which is not a part of it. The dependence is specific or rigid on this other particular. A relational trope is one which is dependent on two or more particulars, neither of which is part of it or part of one another. The one clear example of a relational trope with which I am at all happy and reasonably confident is the collision of two bodies. Uh, if John collides with Mary in the corridor at 10 a.m., the collision is an event which cannot exist without both John and Mary, neither of whom is part of the other, and it's categorically impossible for an event like a collision to be part of a thing like John or Mary. The collision makes the predication John collided with Mary true. Of course, there could have been a collision between John and Mary, then or at another time, that made the same predication true, but was not the same collision. For example, perhaps they collided elsewhere ten minutes earlier, or they could have done so uh, somewhere else at 10 a.m. That this particular collision makes the predication John collided with Mary true, provided, because of taking account of tense, provided the predication is made after 10 a.m., but other such collisions could also have made it true, and indeed perhaps other ones do make it true, is because the predication, as Ramsey and later Davidson pointed out, is not atomic, but has the truth conditions of a doubly existentially quantified predication. There was a collision between John and Mary at some time before now. 
Note, incidentally, that this is a symmetrical relational predication. Non-symmetric relational predications <coughs> present problems that I am deliberately avoiding. Um, if there are rel relational predications that can only be true because of the existence of relational tropes, then relations, qua tropes, are something to which this nominalistic account is ontologically committed. However, if the truth of contingent relational facts can be accounted for without invoking relations as something objective in the world, we are not so committed. The next section is called Contingent Relational Facts. Uh, now I'm using the word fact here as synonym for truth. Uh, it, it's generally accepted, and I too shall accept, that some facts are contingent, some truths are contingent. Contingent facts, by the principle of sufficient reason, stand in need of an account as to why they are true. Now, such a, an explanation need not, in my opinion, always call for truth-makers, because I'm not a truth-maker-maximalist. For example, each of these truths, that there are no unicorns, that I am not now in San Francisco, and that John did not collide with Mary yesterday, and that there are fewer than 100 people in this room, each of these truths is not true because something exists, but is true by default because nothing exists that it uh, or they, were they to exist, would have made it false. So, were, were there had to have been a collision yesterday between John and Mary, that would have made it true that John did collide with Mary yesterday. There was not one, therefore by default it's true that he didn't and similarly for the case of unicorns. There aren't any things in the world excluding unicorns from existing, there just aren't any unicorns. So that's a truth without a truth maker, it's a negative existential truth. Now, some predications mean in such a way that in order to be true, something has to, or some things have to exist, either particular named things or things of a certain kind. These things are necessary for the predications to be true, and whosoever assertively utters such a predication is thereby wittingly or unwittingly committed to the existence of such things. Most obviously, to assert an existential predication is to be committed to the existence of a thing or things making such predications true. But not all cases of commitment in this way commit us to truth-makers for the whole predication in question. For example, whoever asserts, as did Kant in one of his earlier writings, there are narwhals but no unicorns, is committed to narwhals. But these are not truth-makers for the predication because their existence is not sufficient for the truth of the conjunction, the second conjunction of which is a negative existential and requires the non-existence of unicorns. Further, propositions like, I am not now in San Francisco, I am now in London. The SS Andrea Doria collided with the S motor ship Stockholm on the 25th of July, 1956. Asteroid 2012 KT42 did not collide with the Earth on 29th of May, 2012. KT42 was in fact 14,000 kilometers from the Earth on the 29th of May, 2012, uncomfortably close. Fortunately, last truth, asteroid 2012 KT42 is approximately 7 metres in diameter, so it almost certainly would have broken up and not caused significant harm. All of those 
truths, I claim, are true, contingent, relational, and strongly external. They are all concerned, in whole or in part, with spatial relationships, in particular with where certain things are in relation to one another at certain times. For instance, is the asteroid uh, in the process of ploughing into the Earth or not at a certain time? It is such relationships that provide the best example of relational truths that appear to call for real relations as their truth-makers. Quite true, we look for why. Quite contingent, we look to factors in the real world for the answer. Quite relational, they concern several things. And quite strongly external, the answer does not turn solely on the existence or factual natures of their terms. They are thus among the best candidates for convincing us that real relations exist. Okay, the next section is called The Theoretical Unsettledness of Space and Time, and it's just very short. And it's basically me throwing my hands in the air. The examples turn on spatial and temporal relationships, which are strong candidates for real external relations. However, space, time, and space-time are notoriously intricate and unresolved areas in ontology. Disputes among proponents and opponents of relationalism and substantivalism on the one hand, and in the philosophy of time, eternalism versus various species of real tensiveness, presentism, growing block theory, moving spotlight theory, pruning tree theory, these controversies are rife, involved, and unresolved. The physics of space and time is a far from settled matter. Whether space-time is discrete or continuous, finite or infinite, fundamental or emergent, are all matters of ongoing discussion and speculation. So there is no promise that we are yet close to a satisfactory answer as to whether the best metaphysics of space and time delivers us good arguments for fundamental relations, since we have no assurance that such a metaphysics is yet at hand. So, ignoring the problem, uh, I press on with section 6, which is called Space, Time and Causation. Relationist accounts of space and time have traditionally been hampered by questions as to the possibility of spatiotemporal vacua, that is, places and times without real content, whether spatial vacua, regions without anything in them, or temporal vacua, times when nothing happens. If such things are possible, space-time would appear to exist independently of its contents. Fortunately, it appears that there is no empty space-time, so the question does not realistically arise, so I should put it on one side. There are a number of reasons for thinking that the best available account of the nature of space-time has to bring in causation. The directional earlier-later asymmetry of time, or in relativistic terms, the asymmetry of the ordering of two events in, in time-like separation, has been explicated in terms of causal connectability by Reichenbach, Grunbaum, Van Fraassen, and others. According to this view, two locations, or loci, L and M, are in time-like separation, with L before M, if and only if it's physically possible for an event at L to cause an event at M. And I consider this view to be basically correct. In fact, I would strengthen the position to say that L and M not only are merely causally connectable, 
which begs the question as to the status of the modal operator, but actually connected, some event at L causing some event at M. Again, it is the plenary nature of space-time which appears to allow this. Questions of whether there can then be time travel turn on whether there can be causal loops. My own view is that there cannot, but a more ironic position would be to say that the direction and topology of time follows wherever the direction and topology of causation goes. If causation curls back on itself or goes backwards, so does time. The causal account of time allows us to deduce the existence of spatial extension from that of time as follows. If there were no spatial separation, i.e. all events were together, then all causes would take effect without delay, so all events would be simultaneous. But there is temporal separation, therefore there must be somewhere for causes to go, travel or propagate. Conversely, if there is spatial separation and there are processes in space, then there is temporal separation because of the finitude of causal propagation. Perhaps both a spread out, unchanging universe and an enduring space spaceless universe are conceivable, but neither is compatible with what we know about our causal universe and neither is to be taken seriously in metaphysics, which is difficult enough already without exploring the merely conceivable. Section 7 is called Things and Processes, How Related. The contingent external relationships of things in space and time remains a datum to be explained. But the things in question, like you, me, Napoleon and Bismarck, are not clearly, I don't say clearly not, but they are not self-evidently the metaphysical last word as occupants of space and time. Consider by way of contrast an ontology that I like, the ontology of Whitehead, in which events and processes are ontologically prior to things. Natural science aside, there is a good metaphysical reason for looking with some favour on this ontology. This is the problem of truth-makers for temporally specific existence statements. A contingent statement for example, is Bismarck and Napoleon were both alive on the 18th of June, 1815. What makes it true that the 46-year-old Napoleon and the six-week-old Bismarck were both contingently alive on this day? Not their mere existence. Because either or both of them could have existed but have died earlier. Napoleon at the battles of Leipzig or Borodino and maybe Bismarck of an infantile infection in his first month. The only kinds of items, the, sorry, the only kinds of item connected with either European statesman that could have necessitated their existence on that day are vital processes such as breathing, the heart beating, and so on, which have three important characteristics. Firstly, they are, or in this case, were of a sort naturally necessary at that time for their bearers to be alive. They essentially took place sorry, I lost my... yeah, when and where they did and not at another time. And the processes combined together constitute processes sufficient to sustain a life. And therefore, occurring on that day are truth makers for the contingent conjunctive truth 
above. Uh, I'm pleased I wrote at that time those were naturally necessary because there was an item in the paper this morning about a guy who's been living for months without a, a natural heart. He's got some kind of artificial pump inside him. But functionally speaking, that's a heart. It's just a, not an ordinary one. Um, so, if that's so, then arguably the existence of a continuant or endurant such as Napoleon is ontologically dependent on there being some processes sustaining him at some time. Not that any of these processes is individually essential to Napoleon. Rather, he is generically dependent on there being some such processes. Since processes other than those which did sustain him at the time might have sustained him at the same time, and these might have happened elsewhere, Napoleon's whereabouts on the fateful day, 18th of June, 1815, are contingent and accidental to him. For it's still to have been Napoleon who was alive at the Battle of Leipzig in 1813, and the same Napoleon who was alive on the day of Waterloo, which is the day I've been talking about, there must have been a succession indeed an uninterrupted and continuous succession of sustaining vital processes. The relationships among these processes are not causal in the sense that the earlier ones cause the later ones, but there are myriad strands of causation running through them like threads in a rope. Adopting Kurt Levine's concept of gen identity, we can say that later phases of the total sustaining process are gen-identical with earlier phases, and indeed vice versa. Gen-identity is an equivalence relation, and the ontologically derivative invariant that is identical throughout the phases is that enduring object Napoleon Bonaparte himself, for example. If then enduring objects are ontologically secondary to processes, this means that the ontologically prior processes have a closer tie to their spatiotemporal locations than the invariant endurance they sustain. The processes actually sustaining Napoleon on the 18th of June, 1815, had to be where and when they were. But there is no necessity that those actual processes had to take place. The gen identity train might have stopped or have been diverted elsewhere meaning that it was contingent where Napoleon was on that day. Okay, the next section is on causal coincidence. That the location of enduring things at a time is contingent despite the locational essentialism of their sustaining processes means that it is not naturally or causally necessary that the lives of such things, as what in fact sustain them, take the course they do. Now, this view is incompatible with causal determinism, and the question arises as to what form this causal indeterminism takes. While not discounting the role of quantum indeterminacy as a source of a good part of the indeterminacy that affects any macroscopic item, it does not appear to be the source of the more coarse-grained or macroscopic indeterminacy that Napoleon on the 18th of June, 1815, was engaged in battle south of Brussels and not reading quietly in Elba, or indeed already dead. So to explain this, we need other concepts. 
And then he talk about uh, an actual occasion, an actual uh, uh, coincidence. Consider the unexpected chance meeting that I had on 26th of July 2012 with a Dublin colleague on Turin railway station. We can call that, and I, we do call that, a coincidence. And the word is apt for several reasons. But what does such a coincidence consist in? We say things like, it was unplanned. We didn't intend to meet. We each just happened to be there at the same time for different reasons, and so on. And what these sayings amount to is this. The location of myself at Turing station, Turing station at that time was due to a sequence of events involving conference attendance and my chosen route. The location of my colleague there and then was due to a completely distinct sequence of events involving attendance at a quite different conference in a different town on a different topic and calling for a return to a final different different final destination. Our paths crossed by chance. <clears throat> the coincidence is just that. The coming together of two causal sequences of events that were causally unconnected until the time at which they intersected, after which they continued in a merged sequence for a while. Now, if you don't like my example, here's one you might have actually come across, at least in fiction. Uh, in the 1880 novel Ben-Hur by Lou Wallace, which you probably know not because of Lou Wallace, but because of Charlton Heston, the hero Judah Ben-Hur, alerted by the noise caused by an entry into Jerusalem of his childhood friend Messala, now a Roman military leader, leans to look out on a roof, uh, on a roof parapet tile which is loose and which dislodged falls into the street, causing Messala's horse to shy and throw him. As a result, Ben-Hur is arrested and sent to the galleys. And then it gets interesting. The causal coincidence here is not the connection between the hubbub of Masala's arrival and Ben-Hur's going to the parapet to look, which are clearly linked, but the event of his leaning on the tile as Masala was passing and the independent, prior, long, slow process of weathering which had caused the tile to come loose enough to be easily dislodged. That was where the coincidence took place. Now, causal coincidences abound, and how we as agents deal with them helps to define our characters. And the space they leave for alternatives in responding to them is perhaps characteristic of our freedom. For example, in the novel, Messala has Banher tried, though he knows him to be innocent of any bad intent towards himself. The prior causal independence of the two or more causal chains merging in a coincidence is not absolute because there must be something to the chains being first apart and then together. Our different journeys led myself and my colleague both towards Turin Station and our converging paths in space took the trajectories they did because of our spatial separations at successive times. For one of us to be 20 kilometers from the other at a given time is, or is certainly closely related to, the fastest causal signals traveling from where one of us is to where the other one of us is, taking two-thirds of a hundred thousandth of a second to pass between them. But we pronounce the causal chains independent, not because they lack all connection, but because any causal connections between them are so minuscule and so swallowed up in the background of causal processes bathing the objects in question that they are negligible by several orders of magnitude. 
only when my colleague and I were standing opposite one another a couple of meters apart, both with our mouths somewhere down towards the ground, and looking with surprise and recognition at each other, did the mutual causal influences achieve sufficient prominence to constitute a causal coincidental merger, which resulted in us entering into conversation, sitting together on the train to Milan, and so on. Had we passed at the same distance of three to four metres without noticing one another, the spatiotemporal coincidence would have been the same, but the events as affecting our personal histories that day would not have been the same. So the causal chains would not significantly have merged. Consideration of the ontological relation between things and processes has shifted the explanation of spatiotemporal contingency from the spatiotemporal relations between things themselves to the indetermination affecting the continued existence of enduring things as sustained by processes. Were the processes all we had to consider, then contingency of this sort would be edged out. If what I call locational essentialism is right, the processes that in fact happen must happen where and when they do. And the process's own spatio-temporal relationships turn on the typically more effete processes that actually link them according to the causal account of space-time. Where contingency enters in is that it is not determined by any current state of the world exactly which processes will succeed and replace those of its current state. That formula covers both the causal indeterminacy of quantum theory um, and while on the intermediate scale of smallish bodies like ours, the modest variations of quantum indeterminacy may be smoothed out, longer periods and larger distances allow events to occur which are in significant space-like separation, which not only allows causal chains to be separated enough to allow coincidences later, but also means that small-scale indeterminacies can add up and result in the highly contingent spatiotemporal distribution of matter and energy we take ourselves to find in the world. So while we have something of an explanation as to why there is contingency in the spatiotemporal distribution of things, we still do not have plausible truth-makers for contingent truths about where enduring things are when. Now, the when part is straightforward. Such and such vital processes sustain the enduring thing then, and they have their time of occurrence, essentially. Likewise, I think the location of these processes is essential. So, consider again Napoleon at Waterloo and Bismarck at Schoenhausen, which was his family seat where he lived until he was one year old. They are sustained by causally independent but simultaneously unfolding sequences of vital processes, and I mean Napoleon and Bismarck, which have their locations essentially, and therefore would appear to have their spatial separation, uh, that should say essentially as well, sorry. The existence of these Napoleon processes and these Bismarck processes are truth-makers for truths about the relative positions of Napoleon and Bismarck at that time. The contingency turns on the circumstance that it is these processes and not others that, as a matter of fact, are sustaining those individuals then. The mere existence of the two human beings, even their existence at that time, is not sufficient 
for the truths about their spatial relationship. So the final and somewhat despairing title of the last section is So Are There Any Real Relations Left? Um, it's at this point in the dialectic that I'm usually gripped by something approaching blind panic uh, and lapse into babbling incoherence, and I suspect it's going to be the same today. Okay, the world is a world of variously related objects, but I am suggesting, at least one half of me is, that we can account for this without introducing an ontological category of real relations. No that we have not eliminated relational truths by this account. Two real events or processes do stand in spatiotemporal relationships of several kinds to one another, for instance concerning their distance, angle, and mutual relations to third objects, relationships which admit of quantitative and geometric description. The vast network of such relationships is what underlies our complex and sophisticated account of space and time. In that account, our descriptive tools, typically various kinds of geometry and their mathematical representation in analysis and latterly in geometric algebra, accustom us to treating locations as entities in their own right, points, regions, etc., standing in structural relationships, but a relationist will consider this a derivative matter. It's tempting for mathematical reasons to treat space-time as an independent whole, lacking independent parts, so its parts are dependent on it. And the metrical and geometric relationships among different points and regions of space-time as internal structural relations among these dependent parts. Now this turns, however, on the notions of part and of structure, both of which themselves require explication in terms of relations. And in this particular case, it's arguable that both the whole part relation and the structural relationships are internal. So this seems to point in the same direction of not needing real relations in addition to what we already have. <clears throat> On the other hand, and this is the source of the panic, uh, there is something distinctly unsatisfying about saying that a huge and crucial domain of our knowledge, namely our knowledge of space and time and the things within them, about which there are untoldly many independently grounded relational truths, does not turn on relations. Suppose the spatiotemporal relationship between process P and process Q is internal to those two processes. It is essential to the pair. Nevertheless, it is of the essence of P and Q that they are so related, and we need to articulate what this relationship consists in. That's where the geometric propositions come in, and they are as we said, arguably not reducible to other kinds of proposition. That much we have learned from Russell. What this suggests is something very worrying for me personally, that the truth-maker approach to ontology may offer only part of the answer we're looking for. Maybe, for example, we should revisit Quine's duality of ontology and ideology. The idea would be that a mere catalogue of the truth-makers by name and kind would not suffice to explain the content of the propositions they make true. And I think there are independent reasons for thinking that anyway. Another consideration regarding the potential source of relationality in our account of space-time and the things in it 
uh, is that the structure is expressed in the mathematical structures that are used to model space-time. And since in any mathematical structure all the relationships are internal, we can get the relational ideology without any ontological overhead beyond whatever we get from using the mathematics uh, in the first place, which may or may not be considerable. It depends on your theory of applied mathematics. The problem, however, with taking the mathematics as the source of the relationality is that it appears to get the cart before the horse. Any mathematical structure, qua mathematical structure, has all its relationships internally, precisely because it's mathematical and its nature is independent of whether or not it is applied, instantiated or realized in reality. But only some mathematical structures are realized and others are not. And the answers as to which ones are realized surely turn on the on some independently existing features of that to which the mathematics is applied. And for the mathematics to be apt, it is surely required that the mathematical structure be isomorphic to the independent structure. So the direction of fit is mathematics to world and not vice versa. So without further resolution, this leaves me in an uncomfortable superposition of two epistemological quantum states about the ontology of relations. <laughs> On the one, in one of these states, I deny that there are real relations, since they're not required to make relational predications true. In the other state, I have to accept relations in addition to their relata, because the relata themselves do not suffice to deliver the relationality we find present in nature. In the first state, the truth-maker test for ontologicality allows us to dispense with real relations. In the second state, the irreducibility of relational truths which do not demand relational truth-makers intimates that the truth-maker test is not the sole philosopher's diagnostic tool for ontological commitment. As a fan of truth-making, this makes me unhappy. As of today, I regret to say I'm unable to resolve this dilemma and so I am ontologically doubly unhappy. Thank you.